following I found on, on the internet. And um, so this is the Roman Empire at the time. This is about the time of Jesus, New Testament times. Um, by then, we, as in UK, hadn't been invaded by the Romans yet. They only came in something like AD 43 or something like this. Um, I, I read about it, I wasn't here. Um, but, but at that point, only up to, to France and uh, the top of France. But you can see across um, uh, North Africa and right across um, most of the Middle East. And the Romans ruled um, either directly in certain places or they had sort of what they might call client states or vassal states, puppet states, if you wish. And one of those puppet states was Judea. There, on the right, bottom right there. What that means is that they didn't, the Romans weren't always interested in getting involved and getting bogged down in, in running the place. If they could find someone who could run the place for them, as long as they got their taxes and they didn't cause any trouble, tiggity-boo, that's okay. So, so here we find, a couple of thousand years ago, there's a, a prefect, you know, ruler over it who's from the Romans, but the people in charge, as it were, uh, are is somebody, called, somebody called Herod, Herod the Tetrarch. This is not the same Herod that Herod the Great, a rather ironic name because he wasn't very great at all, but Herod the Great, when Jesus was born, he was the guy responsible for the slaughter of all the kids in Jerusalem and the area uh, under the age of two, all the boys under the age of two. He died, and his sons and one daughter, they, they split up the areas on one of those areas into quarters, and so one of those areas was ruled, which is Judea, and the next door, a place called Perea, apparently, was ruled by Herod the Tetrarch, or Herod Antipas, that's his name. That's the Herod we're going to be talking about a little bit today. So, yeah, let's, um, let's read our scripture today, which is Matthew 14, 1 to 14. I think you might be able to put it on there. On the, so Matthew 14. This is also covered, by the way, in Mark 6. Mark has got a much more interesting take on it, so I might refer over to Mark. He's got a bit more kind of details, a bit more juicy gossip in, in, in Mark's version. But Matthew, so I shall read that. So at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod, this is now going back in time, telling the reason why he said this. So Herod had had arrested John the Baptist and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias, excuse my back, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his guests, beg pardon, his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. I think there might be a little bit more. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. 
When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So, a very dramatic, bloody story. I did think about putting some artwork or something on here. It's been the subject of many plays and films and some famous paintings, one by Caravaggio, if, you're, if you know that. But they're all either too racy or too gory for church, so I didn't put anything on. Um, you can probably just get rid of this, the, the, the thing, and there's nothing else to show, I think, we're at the end of that. So very dramatic. And uh, quite melodramatic, almost. It reminded, when Jill and I were talking about it, it reminded us of, of some of the Turkish soap operas, uh, which they call, I don't know, we call them soaps, they call them pinks. Pink series, they, they call it, I don't quite know why. Um, but in, in, um, <laughs> in Turkish soaps, you know, something happens, and then it cuts to everybody in the scene, it cuts to their face, so you get a good long story, you know, go and look at their, at their response, you know, so somebody brings out a gun and then, you know, the, someone will go, <gasps> and then you cross, cut to, to the other guy over there, and he'll be going, <clears throat> and then the other person's going, <gasps> in tears, or, or in shock. And the main thing to be a Turkish actress, especially if you can learn to cry on tap, you've, you've, your future's you know, well assured. Anyway, but I, we're going to take a leaf out of that book and look at the people involved in this drama, okay? Um, so first of all, Herod and Herodias, his wife. Herod was married before. His half-brother, Philip, was married before to Herodias. Herodias got divorced from Philip. Herod quite liked Herodias, divorced his wife, and married her. So he's now married to his half-brother's ex-wife. With me so far? This is, this is as much as I do in, in family and drama. This is as much as I understand. Herodias had a child, a daughter, who's now grown up. Uh, Matthew doesn't say, actually, the Bible doesn't say her name, but elsewhere in literature, um, Josephus, I think, records her name as Salome. So Salome is, is a good dancer. So Herod is married Herodias, but secretly has got the hots for Salome. So he then has this big dinner guest. Bear in mind, he's in a funny situation, Herod. He's got Pilate, who's the, the real boss. He's got his religious leaders who have a lot of sway with the people, and you have the people themselves. And he's supposed to be Jewish too, but he's not very well Jewish. He's not a very good Jew, that's for sure. So he's got all these military people. He has to project uh, this sort of air of confidence and status. High status society got to look very good. So he's invited all the, it doesn't say actually in Matthew and Mark, it says he invited all these high officials and military leaders. So there's only men in this, in this uh, do, right? Maybe some serving girls, but it's only men. Herodias, his wife, is actually outside. She's not in anyway. So they send such a creepy situation. They send Salome in, and she dances for the guests. Very creepy. So... Anyway, and after she give, you know, gives it some of that, <laughs> a bit like that, probably more alluring, <laughs> more hair, <laughs> and a lot of veils, I think, thin veils. So after all that, he's like, he, you know, he's seriously 
bletching after this young woman. He says to her, wow, you know, that's amazing, so well. And to kind of show off, he says, basically, you can have anything you want. And again in Mark, he says, you can ask for what you want up to half of my kingdom. Now, if you, this is a not very subtle hint that, well, if you're, if you're up for it, I can ditch your mother and you and me can get together. Good times. So, so he's, he's a bit of an empty character, Herod. Despicable kind of character. Um, so that's what Herod does. He's had John arrested before because he's been saying to... Be, actually, if you look in Leviticus, it says that you're not allowed to marry your brother's wife. So John, the Baptist, has been um, objecting to the people and saying, what these two are doing is wrong. It makes you wonder why the religious authorities weren't saying the same thing but maybe they had a special get-out clause for the people who were in charge, I don't know. Or perhaps they were just cowards, and John wasn't a coward. So they had him arrested, and um, it's, it says actually again in Mark that, that Herod was, was quite intrigued by John the Baptist. He would go and talk with him. He liked to hear him talk. He was kind of, he didn't quite know what to make of him. What kind of person is this? He's probably sick and tired of, being surrounded by sycophants and suck-ups who just, you know, listen to her, whatever Herod said, yes, sir, no, sir. Um, but he, at the same time, I don't think he was ever going to be in a situation where he was going to really take in what John was saying or ever properly repent and turn to God. He had far too much to lose. Um, so a powerful man, but very insecure. And I think he's caught by this insecurity. He makes this rash promise in front of all the bigwigs as well. So Salome thinks, I don't know what to do with this, I better go check my mum. She legs it out, speaks to Herodias, and she's like, pinga, ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter right now. You, you, don't give him any kind of wriggle room. Goes in, asks them, and poor Herodias is caught by his own oath and his own foolishness. And he has to um, well, he sends immediately an executioner sent off, kills poor John the Baptist, brings his head on a platter. Thank you very much. Really nasty. And the people, John the Baptist is very popular with the people, by the way, and that's the reason that John didn't want to kill him, because if I kill him, then the people are maybe going to revolt against me, and where's it going to end up? Um, you wonder about Herodias as well. I, I, it's hard to know. I mean, she was outside the banquet, but maybe she, did she set the whole thing up somehow? Maybe she sort of thought, yeah, I can see the way he's looking at my daughter. I reckon if she dances well enough, he might just overstep and promise her something, and then I've got, because obviously she was very embarrassed, humiliated by John the Baptist, telling everyone that what she's doing is wrong. Then we have John. The Baptist himself languishing in a cell before he gets his head taken off. And that's the end of, of his ministry, his life. What an ignoble, kind of miserable end. And you might wonder, well, did, did John the Baptist fail? Was, was his, if his life had up to this, was he doing the right thing after all? He was Jesus' cousin. Do you remember? Back to the 
the, uh, the, the nativity stories, about the same age as Jesus, filled with the Spirit in a similar way to Jesus. He even had his own disciples. He had a very similar ministry, going around touring in the area around Judea, bringing people, calling people back to a repentance, and he even baptized Jesus as well into the same repentance, the same bringing back people to God, preparing the way for Jesus. And then Jesus himself, how, oh, sorry, and also he had the same motivation as Jesus, same motives, the same fuel, if you like, um, in that he, he loved God. He, you know, he, he respected God. He was zealous for God. He did what he, he felt he should do. And then you've got Jesus himself who loses um, John the Baptist. How must he have felt to hear of his cousin, ministry partner, as it were, someone he's grown up with, shared maybe many words with, maybe secrets of the gospel, things that they'd heard from, from God the Father together. How must he have felt? Not surprisingly, he, he wants to go, he tries to get away from all the crowds who are around him, trying to push him for healing and, and uh, his teaching. He tries to get away, but he's not successful. Presumably, he wants to get away to grieve and to pray. But he wasn't really allowed, unfortunately, because... The people figure out where he's going and they run around and by the time they get there on the boats, that they're all there. And so he, you know, what, what, uh, what great patience and compassion and grace Jesus showed. Because, I mean, if I was in his shoes, I really would not like to have lots of people around me, you know, help me, help me, help me. Come on, my cousin's just been murdered. I need some time to grieve. But he doesn't take that time. He carries on giving out. So that's kind of amazing as well, I think. So that's the kind of melodrama. But what can we learn? It's such an unusual um, thing for us to see that it's hard to sort of say, oh, well, the moral of the story is, you know, this. I mean, I've got a couple straight off as I was reading it. A couple of things is like, um, for some men, don't, promising, don't promise anything to dancing girls. <laughs> okay? Very important. Ladies, you shouldn't always listen to your mother. <laughs> but seriously, though, it did make me think a lot about what success means, about what blessing looks like, and that how we often fall into a trap of thinking it looks like something. I mean, if you look at the way that the, the world, you look in our natural eyes, we look at someone like Herod, Wow, he's a successful guy, right? He's got all the power. He's got all the money. But he's running on empty. He's a despicable man, really. An empty man. Hollow man. His, his motives, the fuel he was living his life on is all around jealousy and envy and intrigue and power and deceit and murder. And what a failure of a man. But he's got all the lolly. He's got all the power and the women. John the Baptist, actually, I wonder if Jesus, when he saw, when he heard about John the Baptist, and he maybe he thought about his, his own destiny. And did he wonder at that point that he was going to end up in a similar, similar fashion, persecuted to the point of death? But 
Jesus and John the Baptist, they come to a, a bad ending, it seems, and yet their motivations are all pure. These are holy men who want to please God. And whatever they've done, they've done at the behest of God, at God's will and wish. They've heard God, listened to it, but it doesn't look very good, does it? And we often, I think, fall prey to, to this thinking that we look at what we think, well, what, I want to be a successful person. And we all want to be successful, but what does that look like? We judge too often from the outside, as, as the Bible talks about, as the world sees. So you see the person who's got the car, who's got the job, who's got the 2.4 children, whatever, I'm joking. But you know what I mean? These are all good things. Praise God for them. And yet we see those and we define that. Financial security, influence, maybe good reputation, successful person. Now there might be, but it depends what motivations they've had, doesn't it? I think we should look at success more base our judgment of success on what somebody's motivations are. So I ask you, what are your motivations in life? What is it that fuels you? Are you do you have a vision of success in your mind which is no different from all the people at work or at school or college? Uh, you're just copying that formula for success and you're trying to go for that. That's not what God wants from you. You can't judge your success on some outcome. I think we only judge it on the motivations that we have and what is fueling us. So let's take heed of what fuels us. And if we're being fueled by something else, if our motivations are not from God and what he wants, it's time to change. It's time to repent. It's time to readjust what we're doing. You know, we've heard about the you know, there's a whole thing about hashtag blessed, right? There's a whole bunch of stuff in, in, in um, Instagram and all the rest of it. And they'd sort of say, oh, I've got this and this has happened. Oh, hashtag blessed. Maybe, maybe that's blessed. But then what did Jesus say about blessing? Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of the kingdom of God. Um, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I didn't hear much of the blessed of those that have got, um, you know, a great pension and, and, and a house. Blessed are those that got influence in, in the local council. I don't know. That, that wasn't in the list of blessed are. Blessed are the peacemakers. So let's take a, a while to think what blessing is. Let's not judge ourselves sometimes too harshly, like, oh, well, I wish I was like him or I wish I was like her then I'd be blessed. If I had these things, I'd be blessed. Don't judge God's blessing upon you on these external things. They're not worth, not worth much, really. What's really worthwhile is can you open your heart to God and say, are you happy with my motives? What I'm doing, you know, the Bible says, whatever you do, you do lots of things, whatever you do and say, do it all in the name of Christ. Because you're working as if you're working for the Lord. And if we can say that about what we're doing, then we are blessed. Thank you.